Chapters 5 and 6 of Omu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Omu, a narrative of adventures in the South Seas by Herman Melville. Chapter 5. What happened at Heidi Hu. Less than 48 hours after leaving Nukuhiva, the blue, looming island of St. Christina greeted us from afar. Drawing near the shore, the grim black spars and waspish hull of a small man-of-war craft crept into view, the masts and yards lying distinctly against the sky. She was riding to her anchor in the bay, and proved to be a French corvette. This pleased our captain exceedingly, and, coming on deck, he examined her from the mizzen-rigging with his glass. His original intention was not to let go an anchor, but, counting upon the assistance of the corvette in case of any difficulty, he now changed his mind and anchored alongside of her. As soon as a boat could be lowered, he then went off to pay his respects to the commander, and, moreover, as we supposed, to concert measures for the apprehension of the runaways. Returning in the course of twenty minutes, he brought along with him two officers in undress and whiskers, and three or four drunken obstreperous old chiefs, one with his legs thrust into the armholes of a scarlet vest, another with a pair of spurs on his heels, and a third in a cocked hat and feather. In addition to these articles, they merely wore the ordinary costume of their race, a slip of native cloth about the loins. Indecorous as their behavior was, these worthies turned out to be a deputation from the reverend the clergy of the island, and the subject of their visit was to put our ship under a rigorous taboo, to prevent the disorderly scenes and facilities for desertion which would ensue were the natives, men and women, allowed to come off to us freely. There was little ceremony about the matter. The chiefs went aside for a moment, laid their shaven old crowns together, and went over a little mummery whereupon their leader tore a long strip from his girdle of white tappa and handed it to one of the french officers who after explaining what was to be done gave it to german the maid at once went out to the end of the flying jib boom and fastened there the mystic symbol of the ban this put to flight a party of girls who had been observed swimming towards us tossing their arms about and splashing the water like porpoises with loud cries of, Taboo! Taboo! They turned about and made for the shore. The night of our arrival, the mate and the Maori were to stand watch and watch, relieving each other every four hours, the crew, as is sometimes customary when lying at an anchor, being allowed to remain all night below. A distrust of the men, however, was, in the present instance, the principal reason for this proceeding. Indeed, it was all but certain that some kind of attempt would be made at desertion, and therefore, when German's first watch came on at eight bells, midnight, by which time all was quiet, he mounted to the deck with a flask of spirits in one hand, and the other in readiness to assail the first countenance that showed itself above the forecastle scuttle. Thus prepared, he doubtless meant to stay awake, but for all that, before long he fell asleep, and slept with such hearty good will, too, that the men who left us that night might have been waked up by his snoring. Certain it was, the mate snored most strangely, and no wonder with that crooked bugle of his. When he came to himself it was just dawn, but
but quite light enough to show two boats gone from the side. In an instant he knew what had happened. Dragging the Maori out of an old sail where he was napping, he ordered him to clear away another boat, and then darted into the cabin to tell the captain the news. Springing on deck again, he dived down into the forecastle for a couple of oarsmen, but hardly got there before there was a cry, and a loud splash heard over the side. It was the Maori and the boat, into which he had just leaped to get ready for lowering, rolling over and over in the water. The boat having at nightfall been hoisted up to its place over the starboard quarter, someone had so cut the tackles which held it there that a moderate strain would at once part them. Bembo's weight had answered the purpose, showing that the deserters must have ascertained his specific gravity to a fibre of hemp. There was another boat remaining, but it was as well to examine it before attempting to lower. And it was well they did, for there was a hole in the bottom large enough to drop a barrel through. She had been scuttled most ruthlessly. German was frantic. Dashing his hat upon deck, he was about to plunge overboard and swim to the corvette for a cutter, when Captain Guy made his appearance and begged him to stay where he was. By this time, the officer of the deck aboard the Frenchman had noticed our movements, and hailed to know what had happened. Guy informed him through his trumpet, and men to go in pursuit were instantly promised. There was a whistling of a bosun's pipe, an order or two, and then a large cutter pulled out from the man-of-war's stern, and in half a dozen strokes was alongside. The mate leaped into her, and they pulled rapidly ashore. Another cutter, carrying an armed crew, soon followed. In an hour's time the first returned, towing the two whale-boats, which had been found turned up like tortoises on the beach. Noon came, and nothing more was heard from the deserters. Meanwhile, Dr. Longghost and myself lounged about, cultivating an acquaintance, and gazing upon the shore scenery. The bay was as calm as death, the sun high and hot, and occasionally a still-gliding canoe stole out from behind the headlands and shot across the water. And all the morning long our sick men limped about the deck, casting wistful glances inland, where the palm-trees waved and beckoned them into their reviving shades. Poor invalid rascals! How conducive to the restoration of their shattered health would have been those delicious groves! But hard-hearted German assured them, with an oath, that foot of theirs should never touch the beach. Toward sunset a crowd was seen coming down to the water. In advance of all were the fugitives, bareheaded, their frocks and trousers hanging in tatters, every face covered with blood and dust, and their arms pinioned behind them with green thongs. Following them up was a shouting rabble of islanders, pricking them with the points of their long spears, the party from the corvette menacing them in flank with their naked cutlasses. The bonus of a musket to the king of the bay, and the promise of a tumbler full of powder for every man caught, had set the whole population on their track, and so successful was the hunt, that not only were that morning's deserters brought back, but five of those left behind on a former visit. The natives, however, were the mere hounds of the chase, raising the game in their coverts, but leaving the securing of it to the Frenchmen. Here, as elsewhere, the islanders have no idea of taking part in such a scuffle as ensues upon the capture of a party of desperate seamen. 
the runaways were once brought aboard, and, though they looked rather sulky, soon came round, and treated the whole affair as a frolicsome adventure. CHAPTER Six: WE TOUCH AT LA DOMINICA Fearful of spending another night in Heidi Hoo, Captain Guy caused the ship to be got under way shortly after dark. The next morning, when all supposed that we were fairly embarked for a long cruise, our course was suddenly altered for La Dominica, or Hivarhu, an island just north of the one we had quitted. The object of this, as we learned, was to procure, if possible, several English sailors, who, according to the commander of the corvette, had recently gone ashore there from an American whaler, and were desirous of shipping aboard of one of their own country vessels. We made the land in the afternoon, coming abreast of a shady glen opening from a deep bay, and winding by green defiles far out of sight. "'Hands by the weather mainbrace!' roared the mate, jumping up on the bulwarks, and in a moment the prancing Julia, suddenly arrested in her course, bridled her head like a steed reined in, while the foam flaked under her bows. This was the place where we expected to obtain the men, so a boat was at once got in readiness to go ashore. Now it was necessary to provide a picked crew, men the least likely to abscond. After considerable deliberation on the part of the captain and mate, four of the seamen were pitched upon as the most trustworthy, or rather they were selected from a choice assortment of suspicious characters as being of an inferior order of rascality. Armed with cutlasses all round, the natives were said to be an ugly set, they were followed over the side by the invalid captain, who, on this occasion, it seems, was determined to signalize himself. Accordingly, in addition to his cutlass, he wore an old boarding belt, in which was thrust a brace of pistols. They at once shoved off. My friend Longghost had, among other things which looked somewhat strange in a ship's forecastle, a capital spy-glass, and on the present occasion we had it in use. When the boat neared the head of the inlet, though invisible to the naked eye, it was plainly revealed by the glass, looking no bigger than an eggshell, and the men diminished to pygmies. At last, borne on what seemed a long flake of foam, the tiny craft shot up the beach amid a shower of sparkles. Not a soul was there. Leaving one of their number by the water, the rest of the pygmies stepped ashore, looking about them very circumspectly, pausing now and then hand to ear, and peering under a dense grove, which swept down within a few paces of the sea. No one came, and to all appearances everything was as still as the grave. Presently he with the pistols, followed by the rest flourishing their bodkins, entered the wood and were soon lost to view. They did not stay long, probably anticipating some inhospitable ambush were they to stray any distance up the glen. In a few moments they embarked again, and were soon riding pertly over the waves of the bay. All of a sudden the captain started to his feet, the boat spun round, and again made for the shore. Some twenty or thirty natives armed with spears, which through the glass looked like reeds, had just come out of the grove and were apparently shouting to the strangers not to be in such a hurry, but return and be sociable. But they were somewhat distrusted, for the boat paused about its length from the beach, 
when the captain standing up in its head delivered an address in pantomime, the object of which seemed to be that the islanders should draw near. One of them stepped forward and made answer, seemingly again urging the strangers not to be diffident, but beach their boat. The captain declined, tossing his arms about in another pantomime. In the end, he said something which made them shake their spears, whereupon he fired a pistol among them, which set the whole party running, while one poor little fellow, dropping his spear and clasping his hand behind him, limped away in a manner which almost made me itch to get a shot at his assailant. Wanton acts of cruelty like this are not unusual on the part of sea captains landing at islands comparatively unknown. Even at the Pomotu group, but a day's sail from Tahiti, the islanders coming down to the shore have several times been fired at by trading schooners passing through their narrow channels, and this too as a mere amusement on the part of the ruffians. Indeed, it is almost incredible the light in which many sailors regard these naked heathens. They hardly consider them human. But it is a curious fact that the more ignorant and degraded men are, the more contemptuously they look upon those whom they deem their inferiors. All powers of persuasion being thus lost upon these foolish savages, and no hope left of holding further intercourse, the boat returned to the ship. End of chapters 5 and 6 Recording by Tricia G.